Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1276. Interview number 15 with Jim Eugenio and Paul Bull about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on December 9th of the year 2022. And once again, it is my pleasure and my privilege to bring back to our airways both Jimmy Jamio and researcher Paul Blow. Uh, they respectively wrote the screenplay for and are featured prominently in the version of, uh, Oliver Stone's JFK Revisited through our Destiny Betrayed, the four hour version. Jim, Paul, welcome back once again to our airways. Thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we were talking, Paul, before we, uh, break, before the break, about a network of anti-Castro business people. Some of them, like Mr. Riley, were the employers of Lee Harvey Oswald. But I wonder if you would repeat your presentation of that. And bear in mind uh, that, that for the listeners, bear in mind that the people that Paul is going to be describing are meeting in the same building as was owned by Guy Bannister. We'll talk about some of his apparent activities, uh, reviewing and also expanding. And also the alleged Marxist, Lee Harvey Oswald, the sole New Orleans member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, is uh, using this same building. And he had some company. Uh, perhaps a pun intended. Paul, tell us about that network that was operating out of uh, this building. Yeah, but that's that's uh, I think really important because uh, uh, if you conclude the way we did, I think during your last episode that the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and its members was not Oswald's network, we can ask ourselves the question: What was his network? And uh, Jim pointed out. I actually have an article here uh, that talks about how Guy Bannister helped find the space for Oswald. In, uh, it's in a 1979 article in uh, the Dallas Morning News where they interviewed uh, his secretary. Uh, what was that office? Well, it was a place that had been, and many people say was still being used by Cuban exiles, namely... Uh, an organization uh, called the Crusade to Free Cuba, which was more of a fundraising uh, unit that was organized by both the CRC and members of the business community. And uh, Jim Garrison wanted to know uh, who were the people in that building. And he really, really, uh, you know, found an awful lot of information. So he found the members of the Crusade to Free Cuba. Now, the Crusade Free Cuba uh, was organizing fundraising uh, activities, uh, which I believe uh, brought some of their people to go and actually collect in the international trademark, which was where Clay Shaw, uh, of course, uh, you know, a building that Clay Shaw, an organization that he was managing, and where uh, uh, David Ferry was often seen uh, in the building, and some of the young people like uh, Martins and a guy called, I think his name is Logan. Anyway, young people who, uh, you know, were connected to these Cuban exiles and would help in money raising. Anyway, on the list, you have an awful lot of prominent business people, 
I'll name you a few. William T. Walsh. Now, William T. Walsh, okay, who is he? Uh, okay, so one of his credentials was he was a secretary of the Mississippi uh, Valley World Trade Center. Now, guess who the, the secretary uh, of that organization was? Okay, it had a secretary uh, called the MPWTC. It was none other than Clayshaw himself. Okay, so uh, this... But the, 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 the uh, secretary of that group was Clayshaw? Yeah, of the, um, the uh, Mississippi Valley World Trade Center. Now, the Mississippi... Okay, now the Mississippi Valley Trade Center at one point, okay, uh, you know, some of the people there, I think it was Walsh himself, when uh, the Russian deputy premier, Anas, Anastas Mikoyan of the Soviet Union, he visited the United States, uh, you know, somewhere, I think from the 4th to the 20th, of January, I'm not sure what year, but he had come in and, uh, you know, he was given a profile, uh, this person by, uh, Alan Dulles. I talk about McCoyan. Well, one of the organizations debriefed by, uh, Dylan, okay, who was the undersecretary of state was this organization, the MPWTCA. Okay. And uh, that brings quite the proximity between Dulles and Shaw. Now, there are other occasions where General Cabell would come in and, and talk about, you know, the CIA and their policies. And uh, and he gave a presentation once at a Sheraton hotel. And, uh, Jim, you were saying, I think I got it from you, that the person who would have introduced him would have been Clay Shaw himself. So what I'm what what I'm saying is if you look at this list and it goes on now there's a Dr Gilbert Mellon well who is he he's someone who animated a talk about the communist threat and China and the guest speaker okay so Gilbert Mellon is on this crusade to free Cuba committee well uh his guest and I have a picture of him in the article the keynote speaker was Clay Shaw okay then you have Manuel Gill. Manuel Gill was one of the people that's helped set up Inca by Ed Butler. He's on this list. We talked about Robert D. Riley, where Oswald worked. Now, where it gets interesting is other people like Ronnie Kerr was involved with this group. Ronnie Kerr happens to be one of the people that Oswald applied for work at. So he could keep getting his unemployment insurance or something. Then... You have the whole Cuban exile faction that are on this list. Some of the names, Carlos Quiroga. Who's Carlos Quiroga? Well, he's someone who went and visited Oswald at his place and brought him a stack of Fair Play for Cuba flyers. Okay, you have Ernesto Rodriguez. Well, who's he? He happens to run that language school where Oswald uh, went by, inquired about maybe taking Cuban lessons, and, you know, offered to help the Cuban exiles and Arneso Rodriguez ends up pointing him to, uh, Carlos Bringuer. Apparently Rodriguez even had tapes of Oswald, according to Rodriguez's mother. Uh, so, and then you have, uh, Sergio Arcacha Smith is on the, this list, this really interesting list where you see an awful lot of interaction between, uh, Clay Shaw and the group. 
and Oswald in the group. So their network actually overlapped by the people who were in 544 Camp Street. Now, it's not to mention David Ferry. He's not on this list, but we know that he was often in that building. Now, also, also what, 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 what's very important too is, um, this brings us to the network of uh, anti-communist um, groups. And, and if you look at that network, you see some powerful members in the names of Guy Bannister, uh, the World Trade Center, okay, where, uh, where Ed Butler, uh, not Ed Butler, but uh, Clay Shaw managed, uh, Debris for the FBI. Inca, uh, I mentioned, uh, you had William Stuckey. Okay, so when you look at this, you you see that Oswald's network revolves around all these anti-Castro uh, groups that it was top of mind in that city at that time. How can we get rid of this huge threat to our city? So uh, the the next list that I came about on the um, uh, you know on in the Jim Garrison files. Because, you know, we know he was ignored, uh, and discarded after being, uh, you know, unfairly, uh, unfairly, uh, tarnished. But we find the Inca list. And the Inca list is a pretty fascinating list. Okay. The members of Inca. And there again, I found one name on the list who is also, um, and, and the name escapes me right now, but you have Eustace Riley. She's on the Inca list, okay? You have, um, oh my goodness, I mean, all sorts of names. You have, uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, the, the one of the people, his name is Zetman, I think. And Zetman was one of the people on the board of directors of the World Trade Center when it got started. So if you take the... Um, if you take the board of directors of the World Trade Center, you take the list of Inca members, Inca being sort of a propaganda mill that, uh, you, you know, that would target, uh, you know, uh, Latino countries in anti-communist propaganda. Uh, and then, very briefly, uh, Inca, the Information Council for the Americas, uh, yes, its yes. public face was Ed Butler, and they were sort of the uh, coalescing element around the WDSU interview where Oswald oh, yeah. was being here, uh, and, and Oswald was holding forth about his Marxist sympathy. So that's who was there. And this, it, it, do you think it would be fair to describe this? amalgam of individuals and institutions as really an executive council uh, under which maybe Oswald and uh, Bannister were really operating. Well, I uh, I think that's an interesting uh, an interesting description. I, you know, I mean, obviously they wanted to keep things uh, as secret as possible, but it's the who's who. You see, what what, what what I'm bringing this to is at one point, you know, in the course of the summer, when Oswald becomes public, think of who is in that interview where he's debating Carlos Bringier, right? You have, uh, you have Inca, who's chairman 
who organizes this interview, whose chairman is Alton Oshner. Okay. And you have Ed Butler as director. You have a pretty close link there to David Atley Phillips, who's the propaganda person, because David Atley Phillips is suggested to, um, uh, Novell, uh, Gordon Novell to, to meet with Butler at one point. So, so there's some links. Then on the right, you have Oswald, who's part of the Fair Play for Cuba committee. Well, who's given the task of overseeing, penetrating, and, 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 you know, using the Fair Play for Cuba committee to his advantage? David Atley Phillips. And then who founded the DRE, which, um, uh, 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 sorry, I'm thinking of, um, Bringer, who was part of. Well, the, the, uh, E. Howard Hunt confirms that David Atlee Phillips founded the DRE. And of course, bring this to the day where Joe Anides, I haven't seen his smoking begun document, but he's making the claim now that there was an operation going on in New Orleans under Joe Anides to make Oswald look unhinged and pro-Castro. It, it, it kind of all fits together when you start looking at this network, and it's starting to smoke out, I think, persons of interest uh, uh, in this whole affair. So uh, that's why I get back. Now, now, let's get back to the prior plots. We mentioned that Oswald had a fair play for Cuba committee fingerprint. Polycarpo Lopez had a fair play for Cuba committee fingerprint. Von Marlowe, who was another person that Dick Russell researched and uh, claimed was being uh, sought out by Alpha 60 members as a potential patsy, he was uh, in charge of a chapter in L.A. of the Fair Play for Cuba committee. And then Richard Case Nagel to get away Get out of the, he thought he was going to be drawn in and, and, and tied into this whole thing. So he gets himself arrested before anything goes down. And what do you find in the trunk of his car? Fair play for Cuba committee flyers. So what you have there, I don't think is, and, and, but, and there are others there. I mean, I, I talked about John Glenn, Harry Dean, Santiago Garriga. There's all sorts of names I could talk to you about, but this whole what it seems to indicate is a plan A to tie a patsy at one point in time to the Fair Play for Cuba committee, which is Castro's network in the United States, according to the House, um, sorry, the House on Un-American Activities. And when you look at the list I was mentioning to you, uh, uh, throw in, by the way, the tenants back then. Of the 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 um, international trademark, Garrison studied those tenants. I had a chance to look into some of them, and uh, you have one guy, for instance, he was part of Operation Paperclip. You have Gadet, uh, GMA, you know Gadet, who um, William Gadet, yeah, yeah, William Gadet, who had his office there, who published uh, some sort of uh, at some sort of anti-communist publication, very far right wing, so. You have this whole apparatus that, that, that links around Oswald and Clayshaw that, uh, you know, is obviously part of an operation that I'm very anxious to see Jefferson Morley's, um, 
uh, development there of what uh, what uh, he he knows or suspects about Joannidis, but uh, it all dovetails with the research that Garrison was doing, and uh, that 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 I'm looking into also right now, and and people like Jim and others. So, it's, you know, I don't know if that is me. You know what this reminds me of? Thomas Pynchon, you know, the great novelist, Gravity's Rainbow. He said, the state of paranoia is the leading edge of realizing that everything is connected. <laughs> oh, okay. Are you, are you saying I'm a paranoid? <laughs> well, but that, that's what they said about Garrison. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's because he realized that everything is connected. Everything. <laughs> oh. Boy, was he up against something big there, I'm telling you. <laughs> One of the things that I think is so important about the uh, cast of characters that you just set forth, Paul, is that it shows that Lee Harvey Oswald, as a superficial screep face, uh, whether it's you know, leafleting on behalf of Castro, or any of the other things he did, was not only something that the intel community was spearing him to do, but that right above him was a very important cast of characters involving some people who are power brokers. Uh, One of the things that was used to discredit Garrison officially was that he was starting out looking into uh, David Ferry, and then he wound up with a prominent, uh, New Orleans businessman, Clay Shaw, that, you know, how yeah. could, how could you possibly, uh, link such a prestigious courtly individual to a ruffian like Lee Harvey Oswald or David Ferry, blah, 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 blah. And yet, obviously, uh, at the 544 Camp Street, 531 Lafayette Place address, there was a gathering of eagles, so to speak, uh, people who were not, uh, superficial operatives or, quote, fly-by-night people. I would point out very quickly in passing the number of people who began uh, disappearing or dying Mm -hmm. off uh, timelessly. Of course, David Ferry, quote, committed suicide. On the same day, his apparent case officer, Alavio Del Valle, killed himself by pushing himself, shooting himself through the heart, and then splitting his own head open with a machete, which is quite remarkable. Uh, Hugh Ward, another of Bannister's investigators, uh, was killed in a private plane crash, which also killed the mayor of New Orleans, silencing him about what he might have known. I think that that gathering of luminaries there, Paul, uh, is something that one might want to uh, consider in that regard. And then ultimately Maurice Brooks Gatlin, who had boasted of uh, channeling money from the CIA to the OAS in France, he went out a fifth or sixth floor window uh, in Panama. So he had he didn't have anything to say after that. Uh, and again, the uh, Paradigm suggested by Peter Dale Scott, the, the cover-up obviates the conspiracy, and the mortality that we see here is something worth keeping in mind about Guy Bannister died of an apparent heart attack in that same time frame. Um, what are, are you in a position, Paul, to flesh out? the uh, jigsaw puzzle or to put more pieces into the jigsaw puzzle around the 544 Camp Street, 531 Lafayette Place. I thought uh, an interesting 
supplemental element was what Robert Tannenbaum of the House of Committee on Assassinations. Uh, so he saw a film that I think once again brings in the supposed street riffraff or these peripheral players with some of the power brokers. So I wonder if, if uh, uh, you and Jim would talk about that. Okay, Jim Bob, Bob Tannenbaum. Yeah. Bob Tannenbaum was the first deputy chief counsel of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. It's quite a story in and of itself because at its beginning in late 1976, the House Select Committee on Assassinations was being led by a guy named Richard Sprague, who was the chief counsel, and Tannenbaum, who was the deputy counsel on the JFK side. These were, I don't think anybody can argue this, these were two of the finest prosecutors of felony and especially homicide cases in America at that time. And it's exactly what the Warren Commission was not. Okay? All right. Uh, and in fact, Sprague's signal case was the Jock Yablonsky murder, which was the murder of a United Mine Workers candidate for president by the incumbent, a guy named Tony Boyle. And and Dick Sprague unraveled the conspiracy and convicted Tony Boyle. And by the way, he convicted him twice because uh, it was remanded back to court on a technicality, okay, the first time. So Sprague was really in a preeminent position at the time of that, of that uh, guilty uh, verdict. And so the House Select Committee decided, well, why don't we bring this guy in? He seems pretty good at catching murderers. Okay. <laughs> and so, and so, uh, and so Sprague came in and he brought down Tannenbaum from New York City. Tannenbaum was the chief of homicide in the New York City's Manhattan office. All right. And his signal achievement is he never lost a homicide case in seven years. He never lost a homicide case. In fact, I don't think he even, he never lost a felony case. Okay. In seven years, he was, he was that good. All right. And so these are the two guys who at first are running this committee and Gaten Fonzie, if you read his book, you know, he was just overjoyed at the prospect of working with Sprague and Tannenbaum because finally the JFK case was going to get a first-class treatment. Because the problem with Jim Garrison is he never had enough money. Okay, he didn't have enough money to finance a really, what the kind of investigation that would was needed in this such of a complex, big case. All right? And so Tannenbaum was, at the first part, he was trying to find um, witnesses because he was very interested, as Paul said earlier, in the Miami-New Orleans connection, okay? All right, and so he, he's, I don't know how he found this movie. It was a film that he said he got out of the Georgetown Library, and it was, I believe, at Lake Pontchartrain, all right? And he said, and I interviewed him on this. It's part of the probe interview, 
if you if you go ahead and look, I think it's still online. And he said, yes, we had a film. In this film, it was like a training film for these uh, anti-Castro-Cuban uh, exiles. To me, it looked like I could ID Bannister, Oswald, and Phillips in this film. I then brought in other people, okay, and they confirmed that those three people were were in the film. All right. Uh and he's never he's never taken back that um, you know, that judgment by the way. All right. I because people have talked to him about this because obviously it got a lot of when it first came out in Pro magazine it got a lot of attention and the uh ARB asked him about it. Okay, and he stood by his story. And I interviewed him about two years ago, a year or two about it, and he still stood by his story, okay? And if you know Bob Tannenbaum, which I do, all right, I take everything he says word by word. He's a very honest individual, okay? Very anti-corruption. And he really didn't like what happened to the House Select Committee, you know, after him and Sprague left. All right, so that's the film I'm talking. Now, as you mentioned, I think you mentioned this earlier, Dave. In the Gordon Novell deposition, okay, maybe it's Paul saying this. Uh, Gordon talks about a citywide uh, campaign drive to raise money for the Cuban exiles in the city. And since Gordon was very proficient with electronics, I mean, the guy was a wizard, you know, uh, Ed Butler invited him to this meeting, okay? And I think Sergio Arcacha Smith was there, Bannister was there, Butler was there, Gordon was there. And Gordon describes a man named Phillips, okay, who pretty much fits to the T of David Phillips, the David Phillips that we know. So these are two connections we have, plus the fact that when one of the Bay of Pigs training sites (laughs) was being sanitized after the failure of the Bay of Pigs, it was at, I can't remember the name, it was an air base, okay, the, the CIA wanted to make sure that everything they used later, uh, they were divorced from. Well, guess what? David Phillips signed the papers on that air base in New Orleans, all right, which indicates to me he had something to do with it uh, when the training was there for the, for, for the Bay of Pigs. So those are three kind yeah. of connections we have between Phillips and, of course, what Paul said. David Phillips was the guy who started the anti-fair play for Cuba committee campaign inside the CIA, him and Jim McCord. Okay. And we can, we can prove that. And according to Howard Hunt, Phillips also began the DRE out of Cuba. Okay. Before it got to the United States. So David Phillips is his name pops up in so many different places in this case that I just don't think it's, you can't call it a coincidence, you know? Well, not to mention Mexico City. 
Well, we didn't even get to that yet. No. Yeah, we, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, now let me let me jump in very briefly. Well, uh, David Atlee Phillips, one of the top CIA officials involved with activities in the Americas. So when he crops up in a film with uh Bannister, with uh Oswald, I, I thought David Ferry was in that film too, or one of them, but but and maybe that you, is, you, you, you might be right, Dave. I'm not sure. I, mean, I don't have it right in front of me. I don't have the interview right in front of me. was involved. But, but okay. what you have is you have an executive level operator materializing in the context that we have been told we're just, you know, small fry, weirdos, nuts, you know, what have you. And the appearance of Phillips in that milieu, like the amalgam or the amalgamation of a powerful business interest involved with the anti-Castro-Cuban effort that Paul set forth as being in the 544 Camp Street, 531 Lafayette Place uh, address. What we're really seeing, I think, is the power that was operating in that area and at the behest of which uh, the ferries, the Oswalds, and so forth were operating. Yes, that's it's a very interesting mm-hmm. uh, lead upward into the upper levels of the plot to kill JFK. I believe that's um. See, the way I've always looked at this, all right, that there was a ground level, okay, of the plot. All right, people on the ground who are actually in contact with Oswald. All right. And I don't, I don't have to name who they are. I mean, everybody who knows this case knows who they are. All right. Then there was what I would call a managerial level, one step above that. Okay. And which I would put Phillips, you know, as being one of the guys managing part of the conspiracy. All right. And then there was, I believe, the top operational level. Okay. Which I believe you get to the upper levels. Of the, C- of the CIA and the Pentagon, which I believe was at the top level. All right. Okay. Now, now let me add one other thing. Cause when I said this to Michael Perenni, you know, he said, but Jim, you're only describing the operational level. And I go, yes, I understand that because I also believe as probably he did that there was a power elite connection in the upper levels of wealth and power in the United States that essentially gave them the go ahead. Which they were, they were not, they would never do it unless they had, because it's those people who control the media. Okay. That, you know, what we call the, uh, Council on Foreign Relations group. Okay. That group of people that controls the media. And they wouldn't have done it unless they knew that the media would be backing them all the way, which they did, which they did. All right. Uh, the uh, power interests, uh, so to speak, uh, there are a number of essays that I, I touched on in our last talk that Paul has available. Uh, is there anything that, that you can present uh, here, Paul, that will further illustrate or flesh out uh, the higher rungs of the power structure at whose behest Oswald Bethel were apparently operating. 
Um, <clears throat> well, I, I agree with uh, Jim. I, if I can, I, I, you see, I think there were two strategies here, right? I, 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 that were going on simultaneously, some without a third, but there was, um, uh, a strategy to, uh, create some sort of storyline that, okay, we have our, our assassin and, um, uh, He's associating and hobnobbing with uh, communists, fair play for Cuba, and we can really associate him uh, with uh, Castro. Because keep in mind, another thing that David Attlee Phillips did is when Dan Hardway confronted him, he says, you know, all these false stories about Oswald taking bribes in Mexico City and this, he says, they're all your agents. They're all your agents <laughs> that are coming up with these false stories. And he was forced to admit it. And, uh, so. Oh, that... Paul, Paul, don't leave, don't leave out the punchline. When, 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 when Philip saw where Hardway was headed. Yeah. Okay. And, and he walked he... out of the room, didn't he? No, no, no. no. He, he, <laughs> it was like the scene in Chinatown where Jack Nicholson tells Faye Dunaway as she lights up a cigarette, he goes, uh, you already have one going. Phillips had like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Phillips oh, yeah. had like three cigarettes going. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, 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 you know, like all the disinformation, which was, uh, Phillips specialty, uh, you know, and, and keeping in mind that the DRE that's connected to him, they're the ones sending articles, uh, saying that Oswald's connected to Castro and, and then Inca's, uh, sending the tape the day of the assassination up to Washington, the, the interview, saying, hey, look, uh, he's saying that he's a, a Marxist and he's part of the fair people. Anyway, so that's the propaganda side. Uh, I think that the the second axis is one that um, that that that's more around the, uh, the the ambush, the hit itself. I don't think David Attlee Phillips necessarily was involved in that. I'm not even sure who in New Orleans knew exactly what was going to happen there. Uh, you know, they, they, it's hard to know where uh, manipulation of Oswald as a communist for flushing out communists, for eventually spying on Cuba, where that ends, and then the assassination and framing him to become an assassin starts. It's difficult to associate people. But getting back to who, if you go to the second operation, how do we kill Kennedy? Well, I, I think that uh, Larry uh, Hancock is on to something pretty interesting, especially when he looks at the Rodriguez family and some of the, uh, the, the the operations that were going on and people went into hiding after the assassination. And uh, I think that comes out of uh, more out of JM Wave and probably people of the elk of Morales and even Harvey, I, I don't know if Harvey provided shooters or whatever, but he's, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's continually in contact with Rosselli and Rosselli is in contact with uh, Morales and that guy. Now, to your point, how do you go above that? I, I, I'm pretty uh, touched by the uh, David Talbot book on, um, you know, the, the devil's chessboard. I, I think that the person who could have made the link between even though he's no longer CIA, was uh, was Dulles. I, I think that the person who could have made a link with the Luces and the Pentagon and the power brokers of the world because of what he did back in his Sullivan-Cromwell days, uh, and then you look at his behavior, right, 
all uh, you know David Talbot looks at who are the people he's meeting his agenda and you see that he's meeting uh, the head of treasury who are in charge of the secret service a guy called Paulino Sierra some sort of weird uh, fundraiser for the mafia uh, connected uh, somewhat to the Rockefeller group and he's connected to the Cuban exile so the person who can kind of uh, organize it, uh, you know, these regime changes and make sure you, you know, eventually that he would be on the cover up by being on the Warren Commission is a guy like Dulles. Okay. So, uh, bow. Uh, then Jim brings up who are the power elite that, okay. And I, I think Jim, you did a good job in uh, Destiny Betrayed, your uh, second version where you look at the links between, for instance, the Freeport Sulphur and all the people that link Jack up to Whitney. Chocolate. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and all the people that, that you know, the the Council on Foreign Relations and the yes. UN, you know, all that. So that gets hazier though. And do do we know that they say kill him or did they say uh, make you know take care of the problem? Take care of the problem is maybe you know uh, get him involved in a scandal or 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 blackmail him or, or do something. I don't know. You know, I don't I don't know that someone said uh, you know take him out. I think what they meant they said. Get we can't have him. He's a danger for the country. So do the patriotic thing and make sure our country, you know, is safe. But that is that is an area that uh, uh, when you get down to uh, you know smoking gun sort of stuff, I don't know that we'll ever get there. I, I don't know, Jim, if you agree with me. But uh, see, the thing you have this power elite in New Orleans, which is obviously cooperating. Okay, I mean, the Riley Coffee Company hides out, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald there. Sam Newman sure. who owns that building, Let's Bannister, more or less, you know. The trademark, the trademark. And then you've got the international trademark. Okay, so there's a power elite on the local level in New Orleans. But I've also always believed that there's also a power elite out of New York City. Yeah. Okay, and for Jock Whitney is a very good example Jock Whitney was worth $700 million at this time, which is about $7 billion today, okay? He owned the New York Herald Tribune. He was part owner of Freeport Sulphur, which is a story in and of itself that Lisa Peace did a glorious job on, okay, for Pro Magazine. Freeport Sulphur in Cuba, Freeport Sulphur in Indonesia. They're directly involved with yes. the overthrow of Sukarno in 1965, all right? Now, the evening of the assassination, and really follow this story because it's so interesting. The evening of the assassination, Jock Whitney, who owned the New York Herald Tribune, worth $700 million, plays polo on the weekends, comes in to the office. And his excuse was that there weren't enough copy editors on the Available at that time. So here you have this multi <laughs> coming in. Jock Whitney then goes ahead and types out one of the very first editorials blaming the assassination of Kennedy on this weird socioeconomic deviant and the threat of violence that has consumed the country. Okay. Now, I ask you, I ask you, if you're worth that kind of money, 
uh, are you going to go into this newspaper you own and start typing up a, a, an edited? By the way, I can't take credit for that story because it was Donald Gibson. Yeah. Who I believe was the number one analyst of the power elite in 1963 who used to write for Pro Magazine. He's the one who surfaced that story. Okay. That's one indication. Well, and I don't have to tell Dave probably knows this, you know. David Rockefeller and John Kennedy were not the best of buddies. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, they traded editorials, I believe, in Life magazine on what their view of the economy should be. So that's the kind of power elite that I'm talking about that had a very strong influence in the media and a very strong influence in uh, newsprint media. Okay, that I believe would have had to give in their okay before these guys would go ahead, you know, they, they essentially tell Dulles, yeah, that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll back you. All right. And then from there, the plot began. And I believe, as Paul has so eloquently stated, you know, whoever was the chief organizer made sure that Kennedy was going to be gone. By the end of 1963. And they went ahead and they planned these three plots that we know, that we know about. Okay. Uh, One of the things that's worth noting, and that is uh, the fact that JFK has, I think, very succinctly synopsized by Lisa Peace in the documentary. He was the embodiment of the view of people in the developing world as people who sought freedom and a homeland for themselves rather than uh, being communist or communist-inspired. In that regard, JFK was running fundamentally against the entire vector of American corporate and uh, national security policy uh, in Southeast Asia with regard to Vietnam, in Indonesia, in the Congo with regard to Lumumba, in uh, Latin America with regard to Cuba, the Alliance for Progress, and uh, something in in the future talk will uh, uh, talk about what JFK was uh, looking to do in the Middle East. But JFK was, as an individual, fundamentally opposed to the drift or the vector of American post-World War II power, and that there were some extremely powerful interests that were determined to eliminate him, I think, can be taken for granted. I was very interested to see uh, Paul fleshing out some of the other occupants of uh, 544 Camp Street, 531 Lafayette Place, whose uh, visitors, I guess, have eluded the fog lights that have been uh, uh, shown to date. So uh, it was indeed destiny to trade, and I think that... Uh, Looking for the people who affected the, the betrayal is one of the things that will be occupying us going forward. Just, just, just think of it this way, Dave. Okay. Fidel Castro and Nikita Khrushchev never believed the Warren Commission. They both believed that Kennedy had been taken out by a conspiracy. And in fact, Khrushchev met with Drew Pearson, I believe in, uh, May of 1964 in Egypt, they were just happened to be there. 
And Pearson was trying to actually talk him into believe, and Khrushchev was laughing at him. I don't believe that for a minute. Okay, that, okay, I don't believe this Oswald guy did it. De Gaulle <laughs> said the Gaulle said the same thing. De Gaulle because he had been the victim of many many uh, assassination attempts by the OAS, and he didn't believe the official story either. He said somebody had to have compromised the security forces for something like that to happen. All right. So right off the bat, those three guys, you know, just don't believe this paper mache story that the Warren Commission is putting together. Jim, you spoke about, um, in the previous interview, we uh, synopsized the CIA's midwifing or really uh, uh, amplification of the term conspiracy theorist and how that has been directed against not only people like ourselves who look into the JFK assassination, but anyone who opposes the status quo uh, from either the right or the left and gets uh, lumped in with uh, a bunch of uh, psychiatric casualties. The minting of the term conspiracy theory, Jim, and then, uh, Paul, you had an essay that is available on kennedysandking.com. It's about Oswald's escorts. Yes. And yes. Uh, the, the contrast that I'd like the two of you to develop here is the between the rhetorical flourish of, you know, oh, that's just conspiracy theory, and another word that I have found has a different resonance with people, and that is networking. In that essay about Oswald's escorts, Paul, yes. you have, I think, pointed quite directly to the visible elements of a very important, powerful network. And I'd like the two of you to, to kick that around. And we've got about, oh, 15 minutes left. Conspiracy, the whole idea of this phrase, conspiracy theory, as has been researched um, by University of Florida professor, because um, he did a, a, a whole small book on this subject, said if you look... Prior to 1963, you hardly ever saw the phrase, okay? Between 63 and 67, you saw a sprinkling of it. He goes, but once 67 hits, it starts to go off the charts, the the use of that terminology. And I, I believe that, you know, I don't think it's any coincidence that that's when Jim Garrison's investigation of the JFK case became public that the CIA needed a term, uh, something they could stick on a bumper, you know, or across somebody's forehead, okay? A very easy, easily uh, tongue-rolling rubric, okay, that would instantly stop the conversation cold, okay? Well, you're just a conspiracy theorist. You believe everything is a conspiracy, so things like that. And those are the things that began to go ahead and belittle and demean this honest research that the Warren Commission had never done, okay? And so it began to be bandied about. Um, Oliver, if you'll see the online, when he premiered the movie at the Cannes Film Festival and in that huge amphitheater, which sees 2,100 people and was sold out, Okay, and he goes on stage with this rousing standing ovation. 
okay? And he makes a little speech about the film. Remember how he ended it? Okay, yeah. We have now turned conspiracy theory into conspiracy fact. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, Jim, if I, I may chime in, when the press in Quebec, uh, in Quebec or Canada began attacking some of them, uh, you know, Oliver Stone's coming to Quebec City, uh, in French, the term conspiracy theory started rearing its ugly head. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, oh yeah, God. yeah. Oh yeah, no, they, they started using that, but I would say with limited success because, uh, you, in, in Canada or in Quebec, the mainstream media, uh, even Mr. Le Pin, who, who interviewed, uh, him, they were saying, no, no, uh, it's obvious it was a conspiracy. You know, he says, we never believed that uh, Oswald alone did that. <laughs> he would say mm-hmm. that on the air. Yes, yes, he did. So, so the foreign press is not uh, buying into it as much, but um, uh, it's still there. It's still there. And it's still being used by some of the rare writers here and there that, uh, you know, so we, we they're sticking with that one. I, what I think he wants you to talk about is yeah, this network Instead of calling it a conspiracy theory, there was a network in New Orleans, okay, of which oh, yeah. Oswald was obviously a part of, which you did a very good job of outlining, okay. Yeah, uh, here's uh, here's something that happened um, is when I got the Garrison files, uh, the first thing that happened is my jaw kind of dropped because I said, oh my God, there's at least eight thousand pages here. And they're not that well indexed. I mean, it's really one file per person of interest or three files per person of interest and rarely about a topic. So when you start reading them, it's, you know, pretty dry reading most of the time. Uh, what started popping up is, you know, in his witness, uh, in, in his, uh, witness testimony, there's something that just kept coming back and that Oswald was often accompanied he, he was rarely alone and these witnesses uh you know that that uh, led um uh jim garrison to a manhunt and it made the papers and they were looking for oswald's escort a short stocky a massive guy you know very short but very stocky and when i was able to compilate everything in the garrison files there are 35 witnesses who saw Oswald or an Oswald double accompanied with at least one Latino escort. Okay. And then you have another six who corroborate it. It's more like 40 witnesses. Okay. And out of these, you know, uh, out of these, most of them said, uh, you know, that, that one of the uh, escorts was short and stocky. Now, the witnesses were like, there were nine who were collected to intelligence or law enforcement. There was a lawyer in there. There was a lawyer's assistant. I'm talking about Dean Andrews. Uh, eight Cuban exiles, four owned businesses, six worked in clubs and restaurants. Uh, anyway, there's seven people who saw Oswald at a shooting rage with a Cuban escort. Okay. Or a Cuban companion, if you want to call it. Now, there were at least 25 who describe Oswald with a stocky one, okay? And the words hefty, athletic, muscular, powerful, strong-looking, they come back. The reason I felt that this article was really important is 
it added so much corroborative value to what Silviadio said she saw and that what Roger Craig said he saw and that what Perry Russo said he saw because these escorts, oftentimes the short, stocky one, would come back. And, and that would be like describing a scar or a pet parrot or something like that. You know, I mean, uh, and, you know, they're obviously not influencing one another. So, uh, you know, so what we found out after a while is that there's definite proof that the FBI in 1963 and 64 were looking for this guy. And they may even have found him. So the, the point with, um, with, if you really analyze the, uh, Oswald Escort article is that people who were unfairly painted as cracks or, uh, you know, conspiracy theories or whatever, you know, they always took the angle eh, with Richard Case Nagel. Oh, well, you know, he has psychiatric problems and Silviadio saw psychologists and Robert Perry Russo was this and Roger Craig was unstable. Well, why are they describing uh, you know, this short, stocky Cuban all the time. I mean, uh, did they all make it up collectively? Was it a figment of their collective imaginations? So there are just too many. And uh, that that's what went up. And I think uh, the forums were discussing it. And uh, uh, there's there's a lot of people now who are ordering the garrison files, combing through them and trying to figure out who he was. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's really what... Um, that article was about uh, it, it was uh, it, I came to the conclusion that this person was assigned to Oswald and he was probably assigned by a Bannister because he was seen to this Cuban escort with Bannister at times and with David Ferry at times with Oswald not being there. So there are even sightings with this, uh, this shorts and look uh, the the descriptions, you know, when you say short, stocky, very hairy arms, huge neck. And those, those, uh, descriptions come back. Um, you know, I don't, and, uh, many saw him at, you know, like when Oswald was leafleting, many describe a photographer who's taking pictures of Oswald. At least five or six people, even Gadette, uh, said he saw this, this person and they describe, uh, Dean Andrews describes him. Dean Andrews saw this short, stocky Cuban, uh, and uh, you know because it, he had seen it, one a- of the reasons this is so important, as Paul alluded to, is because of the audio incident, okay, in which either Oswald or a dead ringer ended up at Sylvia Audio's door in September, late September of 1963, with what she described as two Cuban exiles. All right. Now, the clincher to that story is not so much the appearance at the door, which is important, but the fact that one of the Cubans called her back and yeah. made these derogatory remarks about Oswald. He thinks we should have killed Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs. All right. He's a little yeah. bit loco, et cetera. All right. And then you link this up with what the other thing he said is that Roger Craig saw another, either Oswald or a dead ringer, getting in to a car, okay, in Dealey Plaza, minutes after the assassination. Oh, very quick, briefly, I want to interject. we got about, uh, about four minutes left. Roger Craig was a palace 
policeman. That's who he was. And then the yes. Of uh, this yeah. Cuban, uh, Adam Oswald, apparently getting into a car uh, immediately after the assassination. Again, we got right. A, tr- a, a, a terrific story and a good witness, you know, Roger Craig. Oh, yeah. Right. And Sylvia Odio, you don't get any better witnesses than Sylvia no. Odio. No. <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, because she said what what she saw to three people beforehand. Right, and her right. sister was there that night. Yeah, she she yeah. she she describes it, and, and Craig is corroborated by a guy called Richard Carr, who saw yes. the, the the same sort of thing. And so, also also Marvin Watson in Thompson's book, he backs up uh, Craig also. Well, the the other very important testimony uh, or witness that I brought up, I think, in this article is uh, Wendell Roach. Now, oh Wendell my God, Roach, this guy! Holy Jesus! Well, yeah, yeah I Wendell Roche worked for the INS, okay, and somehow the Church Committee got on him. And then go ahead and tell Paul, tell him what happened after the Church Committee called him. Well, yeah, so he he said, "Hey, you know what? I've been waiting for your call for ten years." <laughs> I'm surprising you, surprised you didn't call me. But he said, uh, that, you know, uh, that, you know, through, because it wasn't just Rendell, uh, there were people involved in the INS and customs. Okay. Ron Smith and a David Smith. Yes. And, and they had, uh, an informant called Boris Pena and Pena ran the Habana bar. Okay, and uh, Oswald would go into the bar, and he, he, you know, he knew everything about the Cuban exiles. Anyway, they surveyed um, Bannister's building. Okay, and included in the surveillance was the group of nuts headed by David Ferry. I'm quoting here. Roach knew the details on Ferry, and he, you know, he stated that Ferry's office on the side street between Charles and Camp, uh, okay, was under surveillance. Okay, and uh, that he didn't survey it, but that Lee Harvey Oswald, who was identified by INS as an American when he appeared at the New Orleans scene, was seen going into the offices of Ferry's group, and Oswald was known to be one of them in the group. Now that, if you you, you know, uh, that doesn't sound like a conspiracy theorist. This is an intelligence officer. Okay, and we're talking about INS people. We're talking about customs. So. That that was a killer, uh, you know. Yeah, it, it, it is, and we are all out of time, unfortunately. We have been visiting with Jim Diagemio and Paul Bloom. Uh, Jim wrote the screenplay for JFK Revisited. Paul Bloom is featured prominently and also has essays available on various aspects of the JFK assassination on kennedysandking.com. Jim is the maven of that website. Also is a regular, <clears throat> excuse me, on Black Ops Radio out of Canada. And, of course, uh, once you wrap this up, Jim and Paul. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the author of JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, which is a 400-page book based off the film. All right. And the DVD of the, of the documentary is available at, at Amazon. And uh, Paul's essays are available at kennedysandking.com, and his commentary featured prominently in JFK Revisited. This thank you, Dave. Record, uh, well, thank you. Thanks to both of you. Uh, this concludes for the record program number 12. 
76, interview number 15 with Jim Eugenio and Paul Doe about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on December 9th of the year 2022. For Jim Eugenio and Paul Doe, this is Dave Emery saying, thanks for listening.